Emerging Markets Equities Podcast by Aberdeen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Aberdeen Emerging Markets Equity Podcast. I'm Nick Robinson from the Emerging Market Equity Team. In this podcast series, we explore the factors that underpin our thinking on emerging markets, from key individuals to evolving trends. We seek to answer the five W's, who, what, where, when, and why, that are shaping investment opportunities in the region. In August 1971, the Bretton Woods monetary system ended when Richard Nixon terminated the convertibility of the US dollar into gold. Whilst the system had been hugely successful in creating the stability and rules to help rebuild global economies post the world wars, overspending at the time on social programs in the Vietnam War increasingly made the link to gold untenable. We must protect the position of the American dollar as a pillar of monetary stability around the world. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets, except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. The end of convertibility led to devaluation and rampant inflation, which the US government struggled to control. Then a couple of years later, following the invasion of Israel in the Yom Kippur War, OPEC announced an oil embargo to those countries that had supported Israel. This is NBC Nightly News, Wednesday, October 17th. Good evening. The Middle East War produced developments all over the world today. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. They will reduce oil production by 5% a month until the Israelis withdraw from occupied territories. This supply-side shock caused another leg up in inflation which led to a global recession and a halving of stock markets during the period. 50 years later, the similarities to today are striking. We've had an inflation scare driven by pandemic spending and monetary debasement, which is now being exacerbated by a supply-side shock in oil and other commodities due to the war in Ukraine. So today I wanted to discuss an area of the market that's a traditional safe harbour in this type of environment, the commodity sector. Joining me today to tackle this subject is my colleague Ben Shrewsbury. Ben is an investment analyst in the Emerging Market Equity team based in London. Amongst his responsibilities is covering companies in the materials sector, so he's very well placed to inform us on what's happening. Ben, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. How are you? Hi, Nick. Very good. Thanks. Thank you for having me on. Brilliant. Well, let's uh, let's get started with what you make of this current inflationary environment. And do you think commodity stocks are likely to continue to perform well? Sure. I guess of looking back through previous cycles, what we generally see is that commodities across the board tend to reprice upwards through a period of higher inflation. And the commodity stocks, of course, follow this trend uh, with a high level of earnings sensitivity to the operating and financial leverage uh, that producers have to their top line. And it's sort of precious metals and most notably gold that are commonly seen as the ultimate inflation hedge, as these are seen as sort of having a, an intrinsic store of value against the weakening purchasing power of cash. And that's a theme that's recurred through many cycles. And then also as we sort of have this emerging concern over global growth and recessionary risks creeping up. 
you also get gold as sort of safe haven asset too. And I think this is already the case sort of given the, the war in Ukraine, um, which I'm sure we'll come on to discuss a bit more. Yeah, thanks, Ben. That's interesting. I also wonder with gold, if it's likely to benefit from the sanctioning of the Russian central bank and the realisation that dollar reserves may not always be reliable if the country's relationship with the US breaks down. Um, so that's another interesting point. Um, what about the industrial metals beyond gold? What's your view there? Yeah, in terms of industrial metals inflation, it can be a, a bit of a chicken and egg situation as high commodity prices themselves are a large component of that inflationary pressure. Given how sort of labour and energy intensive commodities are to first mine out of the ground and then process, we're seeing quite severe cost pressure across almost, almost all mining companies. Uh, so those that can keep cost pressures down are the ones that actually get to benefit from higher profitability. So the stocks that do well in this environment are the ones that can actually grow their earnings and not just their revenues, as that's what ultimately drives the share prices. I briefly mentioned when talking about gold, uh, the risk of higher inflation, especially when it's driven by energy prices, it prevents a increased, it presents an increased risk of slowing growth as higher energy prices lead to demand destruction, and reduced economic activity. And the demand for many industrial commodities like iron ore, steel, copper, nickel, um, they're all reliant on economic activity. So slower growth means less demand for these commodities, which in turn can lead to low, lower commodity prices. And then specifically in a stagflation environment where commodity prices are on downward pressure from weak demand and producers are still suffering from upward pressure uh, on their cost base, that's a squeeze for margins for miners. And then in this scenario, preference therefore lies with producers that are both low cost, so their profitability has a high margin of safety, and then also able to keep control of their cost base. So material producers that integrate into low carbon energy generation to support their assets are therefore particularly well placed in this environment. And that's a trend I see continuing as carbon prices become more relevant to the cost base over time. I'd also probably just quickly add that commodities and commodity stocks do well. This often reverberates through to the economies where the material is actually produced and exported from. Um, and often this is an emerging market economy like Chile or South Africa. So also second order benefits that can come through to support sectors in these economies beyond just the mining stocks. Yeah, that's interesting. I think also with um, places like Chile and, and Peru in particular, you get these, you know, when you when you have the commodity price rallies, typically the governments try and increase their royalty share, which ends up being a bit of a wealth transfer from the companies to the governments. And then hopefully that ends up in the population to to boost those economies. So I think that's really interesting point. What's been the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in terms of particular commodities and the supply chain disruptions that we, we're seeing? Sure. So, of course, we've sort of seen significant upward pressure on oil and gas prices already as, as these sanctions have been applied to sort of various Russian entities. Um, and in some cases, you know, uh, oil shipments have effectively been embargoed, even where explicit sanctions haven't been applied. I think energy kind of makes the headlines as these seem to be the most politicised resources. Um, and that's probably given its, their sort of importance to the Russian economy. And then, of course, with the oil price reaction we've seen in response to that has had some quite severe knock-on effects in terms of energy costs and inflation. Russia isn't just an oil and gas exporter, though. Uh, they produce 40% of the world's palladium, around 20% of high-grade class one nickel, and then also sort of five or six percent in materials like aluminium, copper, and steel, um, and that's quite actually a material amount when these commodities are already in quite tight supply deficits. 
Um, so any interruption to that five or six percent can can still be quite significant in terms of supply and prices. Looking just a bit more detail into platinum group metals like palladium, a significant portion of demand comes from the auto sector. And what we've seen in the last few years is demand for palladium has increased from tightening emission standards, uh, but supply hasn't actually been increasing. So you've seen a growing deficit in the palladium market for some years now, um, and the price has accordingly moved upwards. So the week following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there was heightened risk of palladium supply being severely uh, limited, especially given you know, that 40% number is obviously a very big chunk of global supply. Um, and we saw a very high uh, price hike uh, sort of following that based on sentiment around palladium supply concerns. Yeah, I feel like there's been an awful lot of volatility lately in that market. Have we seen those prices come off again recently? Yeah, yeah, we have. And you're right. I mean, I think when you get a tight supply deficit in a small market like Palladium, you get a lot of volatility anyway. Um, and that's really just been exasperated in, in sort of recent recent times. And yeah, you're right. We have seen that price often um, sort of shortly after the initial jump. Firstly, I think actually the supply disruption for Palladium is expected to be relatively minimal. I think this is because the physical quantum of material is very small. Only a handful of tons are actually produced and shipped per month. So you don't need a complete overhaul of distribution channels to get the metal out of Russia and to the sort of end consumer. And then given the price per weight is so high, the relative cost of longer and slower distribution channels is, is pretty much negligible. And then another reason around the sort of reduction in price more recently, um, I think there's been this emerging concern, as we mentioned before, on demand starting to slow. And I guess the question is, given a lot of this demand is based in the auto sector, do people really have the appetite to buy an appreciating asset like a car when the oil price is over $100 a barrel and inflation is high? And then I guess also just bear in mind that a car is basically a two-ton block of metal on wheels. So when you also have steel, aluminium and copper prices go up, that cost for the vehicle manufacturer at the end of the day has to be passed on uh, to the end buyer. And this dynamic is even more extreme for electric vehicles, as the price moves for nickel and lithium have been much greater. So this sort of improving price competitiveness of EVs may start and start to weaken, uh, if not even reverse. And just finally, on sort of palladium demand and, and how that's driven by automobile production, uh, we saw through 2021 a lot of supply chain issues relating to semiconductor chips. And although that's slowly starting to improve now, and um, there are potentially other challenges that come through instead um, with the situation in, in Ukraine. So, for example, a lot of neon for chip manufacturing and wiring harnesses for electric circuits and cards are produced in Ukraine. So any sort of production stoppages or supply issues there would, would have an impact on production in autos as well. And we have already seen that. So BMW and Volkswagen have, because of shortages of wiring components, have, have had some disruptions to their production numbers. Uh, so quite a few specific parts there that can also have a have a knock-on effect. Um, and quite a lot of that does actually seem to be around the, the auto sector. Yes, and I, I, th- I suppose one thing that we learned last year was just how these complex supply chains, if, if one part of it is disrupted even slightly, then that completely halts uh, production of autos and you know, has quite a significant impact on, on those economies. Um, I think you mentioned nickel briefly there. What's uh, What's been the key impact on the nickel market as that's obviously been in the news an awful lot uh, the last few weeks. Yeah, well, like I said, sort of 20% of this high grade class one nickel comes from Russia. And that's the type of nickel you need in these NMC batteries for electric vehicles. And so you saw a huge jump in prices in nickel recently. 
there is a slight difference between nickel and what I said on palladium when it comes to supply chains. While palladium can be quite flexibly flown everywhere, nickel tends to travel by container ships, which has seen a lot of disruption as some container companies won't process goods from Russia and some ports in Europe are even just refusing, refusing Russian ships. So there's certainly more supply chain disruption here, and this will likely also be the case in copper and aluminium deliveries to the West. Uh, If delivery disruptions continue, I think in time, the market probably starts to look for solutions. And I expect this probably comes from changing geographic exposures. So basically, Russia probably selling less into the West and more into China, while others probably do the opposite. From logistics perspective, though, this is potentially quite inefficient. And given the challenges already on container shortages, it might not actually be that easy to do. And then the other issue is on exports from Russia and Ukraine. There are fairly few cargo ships willing to go in and out of the Black Sea. And those that do sort of have to battle exceptionally high insurance costs as well. Yeah, that sounds challenging, at least. So presumably we would expect Russian production volumes to decline from here. Well, I think it kind of depends on how long standing the sanctions are. Um, Yeah, I think you might see production dropping in time as there are restrictions on what Russia is able to import. Um, So where sort of sanctions reduce the access to consumables, machinery and spare parts, uh, that can affect output in time. But it does sound like Russian producers have quite a decent inventory build of these things. So that should keep them going for sort of at least a few months, I would have thought. Okay, thanks. And I guess we've uh, covered quite a few of the, the metals. What about the more soft commodities, which are you know, particularly important part of the region's exports? Yeah, good question. So Russia, Ukraine and Belarus together make up I think it's around 30% of the global wheat trade and 20% of the global corn trade. So a lot of potential disruption on availability of these crops, um, and especially so with sort of spring right around the corner and we're heading into the planting season. And we're also seeing Russia put in some export restrictions on certain grains into the EU, which will tighten supply beyond just the logistical challenges. And then sort of add to this, you're also seeing cost inflation for other farmers globally as fertiliser prices, which are already exceptionally high, have climbed even further. Uh, Those three countries are relied upon for somewhere between 10 and 40% of the main three fertilisers used by farmers, with potash the highest at that 40% point. So it's going to be a lot harder for farmers to increase their yields and quality of crops without taking a big hit on the cost side. So that effectively then has to roll through to crop supply and higher food price inflation. In general, there is actually excess capacity in fertiliser production. Um, So we may see some more material coming to the market from outside of Eastern Europe. But these producers have a pretty good hold of the market. And for quite a while now, they've been taking a value over volume strategy. So you might not actually get those extra tonnes coming through. Again, though, what you might see uh, in response to the challenges is a rejigging of supply chains. Again, Russia um, sending more volumes to China. But this is actually harder to do with fertilisers and crops compared to some metals uh, because their sort of value on a per tonne basis is quite low. So the additional costs from longer transport routes can have quite a meaningful impact. Thanks. And I suppose another point on, on that is that we saw a bit of a backlash uh, a week or two ago when Shell bought some oil from Russia even though not formally prohibited by sanctions, there was you know, some reputational damage that they suffered from that. Do you think that's likely to spread through into other commodities? Um, and have you heard anything from management teams on, on that in your discussions? 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. So you've obviously had this huge reaction to oil and gas um, and loads of international companies have discontinued their operations in Russia. But beyond this supply chain disruption, it doesn't actually seem to have been much in the way of commodity buyers turning away from Russia. Uh, and to be honest, I'm not really sure why this is, and it's kind of taken me by surprise. It might just be that these other commodities can fly under the radar and they don't get politicised in the same way that energy does. It'll be interesting to see how this sort of evolves as the crisis lingers on. Um, so it's a potential upside for commodity prices if you do start to see this theme recurring. But speaking to producers both in and out of Russia, uh, it doesn't seem like any behaviour from buyers has changed yet. On the opposite side of this, though, I do wonder if Russia actually starts to put on more blocks on exports. Uh, like I said before on Pelagium, it's a key material for the auto sector. And in the US and Europe, it's a huge sector in terms of jobs. So starving those markets from Russian Pelagium would be a major pain point for the West. Whereas the value for that market for Russia itself in terms of tax revenue generation and so on is much lower. Putin has sort of already put through some import bans, um, but these have really been on quite specific products rather than broad commodity-based ones, um, with the exception of crops I talked about earlier. Uh, but that, I think, seems to be more on securing domestic food supply than necessarily hurting the West. We've talked on previous podcasts about the energy transition and particularly Europe's reliance on, on Russian energy. As governments look to increase their energy security, do you think the green commodities will, will benefit or is there a likelihood that this triggers a bit of a reversal into, back into fossil fuels and fossil fuel production from uh, other countries outside of Russia? It's kind of hard to say which way it goes, to be honest, because there are a few competing forces at play. Um, and it's obviously all very political. So I think it really depends on who's in power and where. Biden, for example, has been very vocal on not having shale production pick up in the US. And the EU already has this green recovery fund in place. Um, so that would indicate an acceleration of the green trend. The issue, I guess, is getting this done quickly. Uh, so perhaps we see more reliance on ex-Russia energy resources in the near term in fossil fuels which may actually worsen the energy mix um, if they say more oil and coal instead of gas from Russia. Um, although in Europe, there do seem to be plans underway to get more LNG. But either way, in the long term, I think this gives reason to invest more into renewables and probably also into things like biomethane and potentially even hydrogen. So, yeah, I think it's supportive for green metals, especially ones like copper, where there's already this structural trend for higher demand and decarbonisation and electrification. Um, which in the long term, against a backdrop of little supply additions and very few feasible substitutes, should support the copper price in the long term. So an acceleration of those trends sort of brings all of that forwards. Copper demand, though, is linked to GDP, so we may actually see that weaken in the short term, given those concerns around growth that we discussed earlier. Similarly, we may see some demand destruction on green metals like nickel that have seen these extreme price hikes. So the rate of EV penetration growth might pull back a bit, um, although there are alternative technologies like an LFP battery that doesn't use nickel. Thanks. It's, I find it interesting that you mentioned hydrogen there. Is it, hydrogen always feels like something that's a little bit beyond the horizon in terms of mass adoption. What's the view there? Do you think that this is likely to accelerate the adoption of hydrogen as a fuel? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting one, the hydrogen story. Um, it can be created just using water and electricity. So if you have access to low or even zero carbon electricity, the hydrogen itself is low or zero carbon. I think realistically, we're probably quite a long way from using hydrogen on huge scale. Uh, but it, the idea of using hydrogen as a fuel for vehicles is a really interesting one to look at. 
um, as the two main issues with electric vehicles are the charging time and then also the range a vehicle can go between charges. And these issues are potentially improved quite a lot by using a hydrogen fuel cell instead of a battery. Uh, so filling up a hydrogen car would be as quick as going to a petrol station and the energy density of hydrogen is really high so you don't need to fill up as often as you would need to recharge a battery. And that advantage is more clear, at least to begin with, to decarbonise heavy vehicles with fuel cells. Um, as the weight of a massive battery in a truck makes the economics of an, of an electric HGV very hard to justify, whereas a fuel cell truck doesn't have this problem, and again benefits in a commercial sense on lower charging times and longer mileage. The hydrogen economy would be really good for platinum, by the way. A fuel cell vehicle uses 5 to 10 times more platinum than a standard internal combustion engine vehicle, uh, so this would be a major change in demand for platinum in the long term. And I think you do eventually see this materialising, but what you need is a major build-out of hydrogen infrastructure before the demand can start coming through and the economics actually make sense. I think that takes a lot of time and a lot of investment. Uh, but we were saying you know, not too long ago that that was some of the issues with battery vehicles um, and the charging infrastructure rollout uh, there has um, been a huge success and, and grown really well. So who knows, maybe we do see similar in hydrogen coming, coming a lot quicker than, than we expect. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It really uh, will be interesting to see how that market develops now. Well, thank you, Ben. It's been um, that's been a really fascinating insight into the various commodity markets, and I think that's probably a good place to draw the podcast to a close. So, with that, I'd just like to thank you, Ben, for for joining us. Great, thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me on. And I'd like to thank everyone who took the time today to listen in. If you enjoyed today, then please download our other podcasts from our website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Watch out for the next episode and tune in. Thank you for listening to the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast brought to you by Aberdeen. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and for more great content, visit aberdeen.com. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results. Trading in commodities entails a substantial risk of loss. Commodities generally are volatile and are not suitable for all investors. The commodities markets and the prices of various commodities may fluctuate widely based on a variety of factors.